Welcome to the Joe Carey Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in, friends. Today's guest is Jared Diamond. Jared, an excellent writer for the Wall Street Journal and a jack-of-all-trades, and we get into all that good stuff, the jack-of-all-trades nature of journalism, uh, trying new things, some real fun, insightful conversations about baseball. Jared mostly covers baseball for WSJ and does so in a fun way. We get into the virtue of silly stories as well. You will enjoy this podcast, and it is here for your listening uh, pleasure. Also, uh, let us discuss today's sponsor, friends, and that is SeatGeek. SeatGeek has been sponsoring the Jonah Carey podcast from the get-go. They are the best. Uh, SeatGeek is the best place to buy or sell tickets to anything you could possibly imagine, concerts, games, what have you. I have used SeatGeek for concerts and for baseball games and hockey games. And the great color-coded map makes it easy to understand where's the best value in the stadium or the arena or the festival venue since it's festival season now in the summertime. And you can get all of that with SeatGeek. Also, what you can get is a lovely discount. If you are a first-time user of SeatGeek, very simple. Download the SeatGeek app, enter the promo code Jonah, that's J-O-N-A-H, and you will get $20 off of your first purchase. And also, if you've already used SeatGeek or not, either way, you can get tickets to an MLB game by entering the promo code Kerry, K-E-R-I. You'll get 10 bucks off of that purchase. So, yes, if you've already used SeatGeek, Go get that $10 purchase and otherwise 20 bucks off of your first SeatGeek purchase by entering the promo code Jonah. Thank you so much to SeatGeek for sponsoring the podcast. Programming notes, you will find me at CBS Sports primarily on HQ. Go to cbssports.com, bottom of the page, you will find HQ, which is our 24-hour streaming news and analysis uh, platform. I am there talking baseball all the time. And uh, also, you can get the best highlights and biggest sports stories right in your inbox every day with the CBS Sports HQ newsletter. It's packed with all the good stuff you need to see before you start your day. Just go to cbssports.com slash HQ daily to subscribe to that. And uh, in addition, sportsnet.ca is the other one. You'll find my writing there and also on television at Sportsnet. And also, it is podcast time. Go enjoy this chat with Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. Jared Diamond, I have been on your podcast. You are now on my podcast. How are you? I am great. This is a much more professional podcast than our podcast. So this is a step up for me. But but it's not because I have like haven't shaved in a month and we're looking at each other on Skype. It's the exact same thing. Uh, you know, and except that sometimes I also talk about like, I don't know, the Supreme Court or whatever. But like, yeah, but you things. have equipment. You have microphones. Not currently. Yeah. I actually, my equipment is actually in my other place. Please don't tell my producers, even though my producers can hear this. So that's, it's, yes, I have some equipment nominally, uh, but generally we try to keep it mostly about the rapport. And that was the thing. Like, I'm excited to talk to you because we're friends. We know each other from the business. 
but you also do, you're in this cool spot in the industry. And before we get into specific stuff, I want to get to kind of how you arrived at this point in your career. Uh, first of all, you were a Syracuse guy, right? I was. I'm in the cult. You're in the cult. So did you know that you always wanted to be a sports journalist? Was that your thing from the get-go? Yes. I was that crazy person that knew immediately what I wanted to do uh, because I was not good enough at baseball to play it. <laughs> and I think I knew that even when I was eight years old that I am not very fast. Mm. And I will never be fast enough to play in the major leagues. So my baseball career sputtered out at high school. I was okay. For, you know, Westchester County, New York, mm -hmm. where the standards are not very high. But I started as a sports writer sort of when I was in fourth grade. Wow. I started on my, on the first computer we ever had, Windows 3.1 or something. Mm -hmm. I would type up a, uh, little baseball newsletter. It was like a page and I would, I would roll it up and put it in everybody's milk, uh, milk carton cubbies. Amazing. I don't know if anyone read it, and I wish I still had some of these. I think my dad might from fourth grade. So that's how it started. That was the very beginning, and then uh, it, it took off from there. That was really my – I used those as my clips for the journal. I have – first of all, that's amazing. I have two things to say about that. Number one, you are pissing me off that your earliest memory of a computer is Windows 3.1 because mine was literally one of those, like, army supercomputers almost because <laughs> <laughs> I'm very old and you're very young. Uh, and secondly, I pictured like an ornery, cigar-chomping fourth-grade classmate being like, ah, too many typos, send it back. Like, I just, I could see that happening. Oh, I cared about typos. It was me, the, the newsletter, as far as I remember, was basically me just saying, this is why I think Team X will win the World Series. And it was pretty much just based on I knew one player on the team. So I probably picked the Mariners a lot, because everyone knew Ken Griffey Jr. back then. Of course. Then. So I let you know, oh, the Mariners are good. They have Ken Griffey. Of course they're good. That's all it really was. I like that. Also, actually, we're going to jump ahead for a second. You have a terrific newsletter uh, that I read religiously called 30 Newsletter with uh, Mike Vorkanoff, both of you guys, great sports journalists. And there's always like the long reads cult where they get all these, oh, like, have you read the thing about Trump or whatever? But you guys select different pieces. And I share all this stuff with my fiance. I'm like, no, 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 this isn't like the normal long read stuff. This is the Mike and Jared, like catered stuff. Here you go. Here's this like really weird science piece from Wired and stuff like that. So I have much respect for the newsletter. And I want to know if the milk carton newsletter was partly an inspiration for the current newsletter. Cause I feel like the newsletter is a lost art and it's, I really get excited when it comes to my inbox i think email is the new milk carton yes milk carton cubby you know it's funny when we started the 30 and i'm glad you read it one of the the goals of it was we are not just going to be regurgitating the twitter long read of the day right. because first of all i don't think people read them i think i think some people do but i do i don't think they get read i don't think everyone who tweets them has read it how about mm. that i think there starts to become this sort of twitter uh, thing bouncing around where it's like, if you haven't tweeted it and make people think you read it, you're not in with the cool crowd. And people just say, this is great. They might read like three paragraphs and go, you gotta read this. And it's like, did you read the whole thing? I mean, I speak for myself. I don't always. If it's really good, I do. Yeah, but yeah. Not always. So we said, let's just find interesting stuff. Doesn't have to be long. Things that we just find weird and wacky. And, uh, fortunately people seem to like it been a lot of fun it's a fun project that's cool do you guys get any professional traction off of that i know that uh i don't want you to speak necessarily for vork but i know that vork 
had a, like a regular gig and then was doing this and kind of freelancing. And now it feels like he's got like, there's more security in his current gig. Like obviously you've been with WSJ for the duration, but do you have people in the industry reaching out to you? Like, do you feel like it's a notch in your belt or in his belt to be doing this thing? Has it reached the corners that you want to reach? Or is it just like, we're going to screw around. And if a couple of friends say that it's good, then that's the end of that. When we started it, it was just, uh, no one will actually read this, but let's just do it anyway. And it's very strange when we either see people in the industry or get emails or tweets from random people who say, I read your newsletter religiously. And we go, really? (laughs) You do? Okay. But I I have noticed that it's, it's helped professionally. I've never really looked for another job that I love the journal and I'm not looking for another job, but I have seen people I know it's gotten in the, the eyes and ears of decision makers mm-hmm. in the industry because I hear from them, not necessarily we want to hire you, but you just hear things. You talk to people and you meet people. And I know at the Wall Street Journal, it's made an impact. that It's gotten me in the door with some higher ups at the journal who read it and trust my, you know, because now I people think I'm an authority on journalists, which I'm not, but I try to fool people into thinking I am. Well, one of the things you include in your uh, newsletter, which I always appreciate, is the job postings that you're just like, this is really a hard industry. So everything from, do you live in Topeka? Perfect. They need a Metro editor to, oh, you want to write for The Athletic? Cool. They have 40 more jobs available, whatever it is. It's this neat clearinghouse. I have not seen that in such bite-sized form. If I was job hunting, I would be waiting for my next copy of the newsletter because I did Perfect. Oh, I never thought about working for Cosmos, but that could work. Or maybe I want to relocate to Grand Junction. I'm going to work there. It's this cool thing. What made you decide to do that? Was it just the challenge of the industry? Was it, I don't know, Vork's job hunting himself? Like, I may as well share this stuff. How did that come to be? That, it's funny. Starting the job postings was the biggest turning point for the newsletter. We were doing well. We were seeing steady growth. But then one day, one week, you know, six months ago, we said, we, you know, Vork ha- was looking for a job. Mm-hmm. He had just started the athletic and he had been searching and whatnot. And we started seeing this thing and we just started tweeting them from the 30 account, the 30 Twitter. And it got a response. So we said, why don't we just post some of these in the newsletter and see what happens? So we did. And the next day we had like hundred subscribers. Wow. New subscribers. Like some crazy number or 50 subscribers in one day because we, we posted job listings. So we said, all right, well, I think we should keep doing this. This is clearly working. And I think part of it is one, it's really hard when you're looking for a job. It's hard. It's a hard industry and you're not, you're not going to be able to see everything. It's impossible. You're going to find stuff. And we've also found, uh, that job listings for journalists tend to sort of just be for established journalists. Yeah. And it's really hard when you're just breaking in to find entry level jobs in journalism. They, mm. they don't always get posted on Twitter. I feel like sometimes job journalism job listings are just sort of passed around the the Twitter in crowd, and if you're following the right person, you, you'll sort of get a heads up on it. Yeah. So we really try to cater to both established journalists and especially people just breaking in. I think the whole newsletter is really catering for young people who are trying to learn about the industry. Why we have Q and A's with journalists or yeah. do the podcast with journalists, so young journalists can hear about you know, hear about the experience of others. And I think it's been helpful. It's gone really well. You know, we started our Patreon and Mm -hmm. that's gone way better than I could have imagined. We thought, you know, when we started, we knew we got to a certain number of subscribers, we'd have to start paying to send it out. That's just how the the service works. Mm -hmm. And we said, we'll never get there. 
Or if we do, that would be a good problem to have. Um, well, lo and behold, we got there quicker than we thought. So we said, oh, I guess we should start this Patreon. Probably no one will pay us any money to do this, and that'll be the end of that. And on one day, we had more than we needed. Wow. <laughs> and, it's, and it's still growing all the time. You know, we have some perks for the patrons. We'll, we'll post job listings every day instead of every week mm-hmm. just for patrons, things like that. But we don't really look at it as, like, people paying for it. It's more they value the content, and they think it's worth a dollar a month. Which is, which is really cool. And it's just enough for us to keep it going. And if we start to get it, now we have a little bit of surplus, which is great. So we could start doing something with that. You know, we're going to try to maybe pay someone to redesign the newsletter to yeah. make it look better. Or maybe buy 30newsletter.com, you know. Um, we're not pocketing any money off of this endeavor. We're all putting it right back into doing it. And who knows what happened, right? It's, it's fun. I think it's helpful to people. And, uh, I, I think people like it. So. We'll see. I love the, uh, you mentioned the young people stuff. I love the fellowships. I can remember I did one at the Knight Center at the University of Maryland. I was in my like early 20s or something like that. And you get those kinds of things, educational opportunities. Because in this industry, even if you have a job, frankly, we don't do a good enough job of skills development. We sort of take it as a given, like, this is my beat and that's going to be it. And you can stagnate in whatever you're doing. And you almost have to be a self-starter in this industry that whether you're a full-time freelancer, which I sort of am, even though I work for a couple big organizations, or you're flat-out employed on a salary, you can fall into a rut. You can be like, I'm the baseball guy. I write about baseball stats. I'm this. I do that. And that's it. And maybe you want to write about farming or maybe you want to improve your broadcasting skills because well-rounded journalists tend to do well in this industry. And there's something to be said for places that offer educational opportunities. And so I think that is a really neat element of the job postings that sometimes it'll be like, you know, come to the University of Michigan for the weekend. You're going to do a crash course and investigative whatever. Like, that's really cool. And those are opportunities for journalists that should really be seized upon. Uh, Jason Fagone, uh, who's a friend of mine and a great journalist, he's my age. He's in his 40s, and he'll go out and do these fellowships and then go and bounce over and write a book, and he's very established. He's constantly looking to improve himself, and I feel like we lose track of that, that once we graduate from college, it's like, I've learned everything there is to know. I've got a job. I don't need to worry about that, and I get it. People have kids and jobs and fantasy leagues and Coke habits, whatever it is you're doing. Sure. <laughs> and, 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 but that is something that's really good and self-improvement feels like a worthwhile goal. And you guys seem committed to kind of spreading the gospel about that too. Yeah. And I, this is sort of a little bit of a tangent. That's also the great part of the journal. Mm. Working at the yes. Wall Street Journal is the opportunity for training, the opportunity to do different things. You know, I've been, I've been in sports for seven years and I, I love what I'm doing, but I knew if I ever want to do something else to the journal, I could cover anything in the world. Mm. Basically. The, you know, the, the opportunity at least exists to cover anything in the world. And the journal really encourages that. They don't actually like people staying in the same job for decades. They want people to bounce around. They want people, especially young people, go overseas. A good friend of mine, the journal who's in her late 20s or maybe just turned 30, she's going to Berlin. Hmm. I have another friend who used to work in sports, used to cover the NFL for us. Three or four years ago, he went to London. He's been there ever since working for the journal. It's, it's the one of the best parts about my place is that it's not a sports only outlet. And there's no disrespect to those places. Those are great places too. Yeah. But I love the opportunity to potentially do something else. And the journal really cares about training. You know, we have training programs every day that make people better. And I do think you're right that 
that's something that's lost because we should be continuing to learn. You don't leave college. You, you could be in the industry for 20 years. You don't know nearly everything there is to know. We should be getting better, especially in this business that's changing every day, right? Look how many older journalists we know who sort of fizzled out of the industry because it passed them by. We could think, we all name names. We could think of people yeah, yeah, yeah. who, they didn't adapt. They didn't evolve as things change. And I think if you're going to make a career in this business in these days, you have to constantly be learning. You know, I didn't, I don't know really, I didn't know how to use Snapchat when it started. It was all the rage, but this is such a stupid thing to say, but you have to know. Yeah. You have to learn, even if you think it's stupid. And just to say like, oh, I don't need that. I don't need to. You do. If you want to be successful in this business, you do. And that's why I do think training is important. Fellowships are important. And I think as people, we get too stuck in our boxes. We say, well, I don't have time for that. Or I can't do that. You know, I have to cover the, the Yankees. Like, well, you can take a year off. It's okay. They'll still be there when you get back. One person who I think really has done a good job of that at the Journal is Sam Walker over the years. Sam himself has had a really interesting career path where he's gone to different sections of the paper. He's written books. And he laid a lot of the infrastructure along with uh, Jeff Foster for what became of that sports section. I, I wrote for it a billion years ago as a like very occasional freelancer. And you've just got this murderer's row of people who've either been on the side or staffers who've done really well, and it leads me into where your beat is right now, because I really appreciate what you're doing, and I've talked to you about this before, I think on your podcast, that, you know, you were on a beat, you were covering a team, and then the decision was made, okay, you're going to be a writer at large, and there are really good writers at large in this business, Tyler Kepner immediately comes to mind, he's as good as it gets, whatever, and I like what you're trying to do, because you're introducing concepts, concepts that are smart, sometimes analytical, and you're finding this balance where you can bring forward something and somebody who's nerdy like me who reads all the fan graphs and all of this and that in the world learns something. But if you're a journal reader at large and you mostly read about the stock market and you happen to flip to the star sports page, you can read it and not be like, what the hell is this guy talking about? That is a really tough balance. How does that come up with your story planning with your editors to figure out smart, innovative, but you know what? I can't be too wonky or this is going to lose a bunch of people. Right. I, I do not view myself as an analytics writer. I don't. Okay. I think I am well-versed in analytics. I think I understand analytics, but I'm definitely not an analytics writer per se, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. right? Because I write for a general audience. I don't write for the fan graph. I'm not a fan graph guy, you know? Um, what they do is great. This is not what I do. Yep. Um, so my goal for every story, and there's ringing. Do you hear ringing right now? Is that just me? Okay. It's probably my phone. I don't know. This is all weird. I've got like devices connected. We're, we're, we're winging it here. We're doing the best. We're winging it here. Cool. Um, that's great. That's the best way to do any podcast. Of course. My goal for every story is you should A, learn something that you didn't already know. B, it's about something. And that's a dumb thing to say. Every story is about something. No, they're not. We've all read stories that are not really about anything. Yes. They're just sort of here's a vague profile of a baseball player and it doesn't really have a point. It just kind of meanders around. There's way too much sports writing, in my opinion, that's sort of not incisive in its point. So I want every story I write to, A, have a point. It has a point of view. It's like I have a specific thing I want you to know. It's something you haven't heard yet before. And hopefully it's either smart or entertaining. Mm-hmm. Smarter entertaining. Either it's something interesting you didn't know and you learned, or something that makes you smile. Because this is baseball and it is stupid and it is silly and it's really not that important. And I don't think there's enough sports writing that's 
silly that recognizes the silliness of baseball. Yeah. So I try to balance between those two. And you no, know, I don't do a lot of profiles. I don't do a lot of like writing about individual players or individual teams. I try to write about big picture issues that are affecting the game. And that opens itself up to so many things because baseball is a $10 billion industry that has major impact in so many sort of areas of society. So I find myself writing a lot about technology. You write a lot about, you know, media. You write a lot about numbers and data and analytics and all that's so interesting. And uh, I try, I hope that my stuff is different than the stuff anyone else is doing. That's, I think that's the goal of any writer, right? That someone comes to your stuff and says, I can't read this particular story anywhere else. I like the silly angle. One of my favorite pieces I ever wrote was about the time and it's, you know, totally self-serving because it was a game that I went to, but it was just like, if you're a younger reader or any fan who's not a maniac, you wouldn't know about August 23rd, uh, 1989, which was the day that the Expos and the Dodgers were tied 0-0 for 21 innings. Such a great story. Before Such Rick Dempsey story. hit a walk-off home run. He was 100 years old. And the highlight of the story was that Yuppie was ejected by Buck and Bob Davidson because Tommy Lasorda literally had an aneurysm in the dugout because Yuppie was punking him all game long. Fantastic. And there's, like, video of Yuppie being it's ejected. A gra- it was a great story. Thank it's you. A, and, but it was fun. Like, one of my favorite stories I ever wrote for the journal was uh in twenty fifteen I was coming in the Mets, they were going uh they were obviously in the playoffs that year. Hard to believe, right? That was just three years ago. The Mets won the pennant. <laughs> God. That alone is incredible. Well the Royals but, too, I guess, yeah. Yeah, but somehow that seems less insane to me. I don't know why. The the Mets are such a dumpster fire right now. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, we're gonna get to the, the re- today's news we gotta get to that too, but go ahead. Yeah, so this is what happened. I was I I was uh I had recently watched the the Jerry Seinfeld Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee yes. episode with Bill Maher. Mm. And Bill Maher is wearing a Mets hat in the episode. You know, he's a Mets fan, and Jerry Seinfeld's a Mets fan. And that the next day, it's Rosh Hashanah for all the people in the tribe out there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like me. And I'm sitting Jared in service. Tribe Called Quest, of course. Yeah, and I, I'm bored. You know, it's really boring. Yes. Not really paying attention. So I'm thinking and thinking about the, the episode and like Bill Maher's wearing a Met hat, and Jerry Seinfeld's a, a Met fan. Well, Chris Rock's a Met fan. Mm-hmm. And I started going down this list of all these comics, like famous stand-ups that are Met fans. I'm like, this is a story. Mm-hmm. I have to start calling famous comedians and asking them why they're Mets fans. And I'm like, this is the stupidest thing ever, but I bet it'll be really funny. So I called all these people. I, I actually talked to Bill Maher, talked to Hank Azaria. Thanks, Chris. The list goes on. And I was like, how did you all become Mets fans? What is it about the Mets that lends itself? And the, the answers were so funny. And it became the story about how the Mets sort of fit the, the pathos of the stand-up comedian. Yes. Sort of this, this self-loathing <laughs> and sense of humor that goes with it. And I had a quote from a, a writer on The Simpsons. It wasn't Hank area, A writer on The Simpsons, longtime Mets fan. And it was a lead quote in the story. He said something like, you can't be a Yankee. If you have a sense of humor, you can't be a Yankee fan. I'm like, that is such a great quote. It's yes. so funny. It's so, it's like, I totally understood immediately what he meant. You know, like to be a Met fan is you need to have a sense of humor to be one. And the Yankees are not funny. The Yankees aren't funny. They're good, but they're not funny. And that was such a, that was such a memorable story for me because it was such a weird idea that just morphed into this like big hit and everyone read it, you know? And that was, I love stories like that. It was a great piece. Uh, I want to touch on a couple other topics that you've covered recently. 
One is about attendance. Now, here is my theory about attendance. You lay forth, lay forward a, a bunch of different things. You know, there's this thought. First of all, baseball is very stratified right now, which would, that might almost be a separate question because there's like these haves and have-nots, especially in the American League. But that's been put forth as a possible reason. Whatever. Weather is what it is, this, that, or the other. I think this literally comes down to a societal change that – we fundamentally don't go out as much as we used to. We cocoon. We all have 75-inch TVs. We have phones. We have Uber Eats. We have everything that we need. Why are we schlepping to place, place X? We don't go to movies anymore. The Washington Redskins finally ended their season ticket waiting list, which was, I don't know, 50 years long. Things are just changing, and there are live experiences. Like the music industry, paradoxically, nobody consumes things by buying them, you have to make money by touring because Napster and whatever, that industry got broken. But in every other industry, the live experience feels like it's going away. I think that is the single biggest reason for the drop in attendance. What do you make of this thing? I think you're 100% right in that we are in the middle of a societal shift and attendance in all sports is going to decline. Mm-hmm. I think any new stadium that gets built in baseball should be smaller. Yeah, that's just a fact. If the Rays get that stadium in Tampa, ha 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 ha. But if the one in a million they do, it should be twenty thousand seats. Oh, twenty thousand like seats, really twenty-five thousand seats. Wow, you fill it up every night. Yeah, you could fill a twenty thousand seat stadium in Tampa. You could, I think you could. They fill it. They fill a nineteen thousand seat hockey arena every night, and it's one of the best environments. Like, it is. Either I'm not saying you could sell it out twenty thousand every night, but it would not look like a morgue. The extra twenty percent, I like it. It would, and anyway. So I believe that's true to an extent that it's going to happen. The NFL's experiencing it. Every sports is experience mm-hmm. because why do I go? Like I'm watching. I have the Yankee game, Phillies game on my TV right now, and like I don't not. There's nothing about this that is worse than the live experience. But but this year has been different. Okay. This has been a different sort of season. So baseball attendance is sort of it's been fairly consistent over the last decade. It's gone down slightly. It's gone up in other years slightly, but in the last decade or so, baseball attendance has never changed one way or the other, up or down, even by 2%. Hmm. Even by 2%. Most years, it's like in the point, not even 1%, like 0.8% will go down, 0.2%, it goes up. Overall, in the 10 years, it's gone down slightly, like a percent Mm -hmm. or a percent and a half, but nothing dramatic. This year, we're looking at a major plummet off a cliff. Right now, it's about 6%. That is something different, and that to me suggests we've reached sort of an inflection point. Um, and I think what you're describing is one reason. I think there's other reasons. I do think that increasingly fans are displeased with the product on the field. I, I do believe that. I believe that based on the response they got to the story I wrote about this issue. You know, if I wrote five, six years ago when I would talk, write, or talk on the internet or write in the journal about sort of issues to the game, the rising strikeout rate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, people would write me back saying, "That's why are you talking about that? Stop trying to change the beautiful game. I write about these issues now, and I get mostly agreement. Wow. So I do, I do think there is more people than the Twitter baseball world would acknowledge right. that are displeased with the style of play on the field, the number of strikeouts, the lack of action. And I do think the, the, the have and have not, sort of competitive landscape is a factor too. There are so many teams out there where they're, where the fans were basically told 
yeah, we're not really trying this year. We'll we'll try again in 2021. And fans are saying, okay, well, we'll see you then. Yeah. I don't blame them. I don't well, blame them. The Astros them. won a World Series that way. The Cubs won a World Series that way. The Astros infamously had no attendance and 0.0 TV ratings. But they'll take it because they won a World Series and now their franchise is worth $500 million more and whatever. Like, that is actually a feature, not a bug. If you alienate fans, who cares? Because the theory is you'll get good later. The problem is that 12 teams are rebuilding now and they're not all going to be the Astros. There's a lot of Cincinnati Reds out there who've been rebuilding since Pete Rose. Exactly. Or Rob Dibble, I guess. The the numbers alone just tell you it can't work for every team. It's impossible. There's only one champion. There's only, you know, 10 playoff teams. There's like 10 teams rebuilding. They can't all be good in 2021. It's not possible. And that's a problem. And I think you're starting to reach a point where owners have been emboldened by the Astros and the Cubs to say, you're saying that I could not spend and be sort of bad for a few years. And not only will we be good in the future, our fans will think it's smart. Yes. Which that is a incredible job by the league to get fans to believe that not trying for a few years is smart strategy. Uh, that's a, that's a amazing trick that the league and the owners have been able to pull. I do believe there needs to be some something, some incentive for teams to be competitive year in year out. I don't know what that is. I I'm not advocating for a salary floor because I would never advocate for a salary cap. However. However, there's no salary cap where there is a luxury tax, right? If you go over a certain amount, you have to pay a tax. This affects five teams, this year even fewer, but even in the three, four teams. There, to me, should be some penalty for going under. Hmm. And, yes, it would only affect two or three teams a year. Just like the luxury tax only affects two or three teams a year. Whether that penalty is you lose international bonus money, whether you – you lose uh, draft slot money. I don't know. Whatever it is, some sort of some penalty. The way that you go over, you have a penalty, a financial penalty. I think that would even things out a bit. It would only affect two or three teams, maybe just Miami, Tampa Bay, and Oakland. But the luxury tax right now only affects New York, Boston, and Los Angeles, and that would bring sort of everyone up a little bit. I think. I, I think it just it makes sense if you penalize teams for spending over too much. Why do we not penalize teams for spending too little? Well, Seems fair. It does. And, you know, I've had conversations, especially if you talk to people who are big sports fans, but not necessarily baseball fans. I'll get into conversations with soccer fans, and they will utter the R word, relegation. If you're <laughs> going to be aggressively bad, and I don't know that it's going to happen. We don't have it on this side of the ocean or whatever. But extreme measures, or or at least something closer to extreme measures, some disincentive would seem to make sense. You know, the bottom of the table in the English Premier League is very exciting at the end of the season because who's going to leave? And conversely, and I'm friendly with a gentleman named Tony Khan. Uh, he and his dad run the Jacksonville Jaguars and also Fulham. And Fulham just bounced right back. They were in Premier League. They went down to championship. And then they won the championship. So they're back up to Premier League. This is a really big deal. And I have kind of come around on the idea. I could see that being cool. I guess we'll just do it as a thought exercise because I don't know that Rob Manfred is aggressive and thoughtful as he is going to go for it. But it feels like that might not be the worst idea in the world. Yeah, Miami Marlins, you want to do that? Cool, you're going to go play the uh, you know Vegas 51s for the next five years, and we'll see how you like it. I do love this idea as a baseball writer yes. that – we get the possibility of like in a given year, like New Orleans is in the major leagues. Yes. Nashville's in the major leagues. Like that would be fun, right? Like the, 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 the cities in the major leagues are different every year. Yeah. Like 
Des Moines in the major leagues this year. We're going to Des Moines. Like, that sounds fun to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, I don't know how that would ever work in Major League Baseball. It's kind of, I don't think it ever could. But I like, I, I agree that, like, something like that does need to happen because it's absurd to me that the Marlins were able to trade Stanton, Yelich, and Ozuna. And it was just like, okay. Yeah. It's ridiculous. The Pirates traded Cole and McCutcheon. They didn't have to do that. Why'd they do that? It made no sense. They just did. And everyone was, and Pirates fans are mad and their attendance drop has been enormous because of it. Yeah. But it's like, all right, well, no one, they're going to make a zillion dollars anyway, ownership. And they have a garbage product now where they traded away their best pitcher in like their best position player, or at least their most loved position player, if not their best in 2018. And like, for what? For what purpose? What's the plan? Do, are the Pirates going to be great in 2021? Like, I don't, I just don't get it. Yeah. I just don't get it. And I don't see why. Like, I, owners should spend their money how they want to spend it. I'm not telling them they can't be cheap. I'm just saying there should be some sort of preventative measure to at least make it say, okay, you want to be cheap. Well, that's fine, but we're not going to just let you rebuild your team by sort of exploiting the draft and cheap young talent. And here's the other thing about tanking, the, mm-hmm. that T word, that drives me nuts. And I, I, I just, it drives me so crazy. <laughs> People say, well, look at the Cubs. Okay, let's look at the Cubs. Yeah, they, they bottomed out and they were able to get some great talent like Chris Bryant, Schwarber, and Javi Baez. But you know what else they did? They then went and spent like $400 million right. in free agency in, for Lester and Zobris and, and, and Hayward. You're telling me that the Reds are going to do that? No. No, they're not. And the Astros, let's talk about the Astros for a second, bottomed out. They got three number one overall picks. One of them was really great. It was Carlos Correa. The other two were epic whiffs. Huge all like among the biggest failures. of all time. Yeah. All time failures with Mark Capel and Brady Aiken. And here's the other thing about the Astros. I love Jeff Luno. I think he's a great general manager. This is not a knock on him. But before he tanked, let's look at the pieces he inherited by dumb luck. The MVP of the American League in Jose Altuve. Mm-hmm. The MVP of the World Series in George Springer. And a Cy Young Award winner in Dallas Keifel. They had an incredible core yeah. before it started with those three guys. How many teams would love to have Dallas Keiko, Jose Altuve, and George Springer just handed to them? So, yes, their tanking worked. It worked really well, and I give them a lot of credit. But let's not pretend that that's all it was. Both of these teams had other factors that made them great. And just to say, well, it's because they tank, it's intellectually dishonest. And the Cincinnati Reds don't have that. The Reds are not going to spend $400 million in free agency, nor do they have their Jose Altuve on their roster right now. It won't work. It just cannot work. Uh, shout out to John Coppolella, by the way, if we're going to do this uh, recognizing the predecessor kind of thing. I appreciate Alex Anthopoulos and all he's done in baseball and stuff. But, man, the previous regime, before everything hit the fan, did a great job of building up that Braves franchise, too. Uh, I want to talk about the Astros. Uh, Eric Longenhagen, Hagen, who's one of my favorite writers, uh, prospect writer for ESPN, he wrote a piece talking about 30 kind of breakout prospects this year. And he cited the Astros. And he talked about the Astros system and how their minor league pitchers seem to improve by leaps and bounds, even guys with net, with you know marginal talent, because of quote edgertronic cameras, which I assume is a reference to Edger and James. I don't really know what it is. We're unclear on this, but you wrote a really cool piece about the Astros and about their ability to tease the most out of their talent. I can remember. I feel like I remember the sort of aha moment was when Colin McHugh, who was like a cast off guy for the Mets, the Astros picked him up. And the only thing that these numbers weren't great and he didn't throw hard or whatever, but he had that high spin breaking ball. 
And sure enough, Colin McHugh didn't become a superstar, but he became a very good contributor. He's actually a great bullpen guy this year. And they've built on that. So it's not just the marginal guys, but like maybe Garrett Cole has broken out from already being really good because of what they're doing in Brent Strom and the minor league instructors. They just have this holistic system that when you talk about player development, like the Oriole way and the Dodger way, there seems like there's something like an Astros way. So is there an Astros way and, and what is it? The Astros are just so sophisticated in everything they do. And one thing they've really figured out is, like, it has to start in the minor leagues. Yeah. It has to start with, like, a cohesive sort of plan to develop talent. We talk about player development. Player development on a lot of organizations is terrible. It's just they don't do a good job because players will go from one level to the next, and the message is totally different. Mm. What they're hearing from their coaches, their pitching coaches, single A and double A, is, like, two different languages. The Astros have done a really good job of standardizing, normalizing their messaging, making sure that every person in their organization from top to bottom buys into what they do, the way they, they use analytics, the way they preach things. And a great example of this is the story I wrote um, at the beginning of the season about Sig Madel, a guy that I'm yep. sure you know well. Uh, Speak of Sam maybe, Walker, by the way. Maybe the smartest person in baseball, like just objectively. Mm-hmm. Is, is, one of the smartest people in the major leagues, the guy's a legitimate genius. He was actually a rocket scientist before working in baseball. It's true. Like when I say, oh, he's like a rocket scientist. Sig <laughs> was, in real life, worked for NASA as a rocket scientist. Anyway, the Astros did something really interesting with Sig last year. He's one of the highest people in their front office mm-hmm. under Jeff. Well, last season they told him, you're going to go be the first base coach for our New York Penn League affiliate. Wow. That was what he did for the entire season. He was wow. in uniform. He was on the bus. He was working right next to Morgan Ensberg, who's the manager of that team, who's since been promoted, who's since been promoted Mm -hmm. after success with this plan. And this had a multifaceted benefit. One was that Sig was able to report back to the front office about, well, this is what we need to do better in the minor leagues. And they made some changes in terms of nutrition and travel and other things like that. And two, it sort of got the youngest players in the organization on board. We're like, this is how we do things. Information sort of given how they take information. I talked to a player that was on that team last year, on that single A, on that New York Penn League team, who Sig sort of gave him some information about the speed of his delivery from the stretch and, and the sort of the benefits of speeding it up. And he implemented it and it made him better. And that was basically Sig taking information from being at a minor league level. And now this year, Sig is a rove, is doing that on a roving level. He's spending mm. a couple of weeks with every minor league affiliate in uniform. And there's some value in him being in uniform, right? He's not some guy from the front office, like airdropping in, in, in the khaki pants and the collar shirt. Mm-hmm. He's one of them. So these New York Penn league players came in and they didn't know who he was. He's just like a guy who's with us on the team. And he's putting in the time, and he's with them at McDonald's at 2 o'clock in the morning. And that sort of says he's not above them. He's sort of one of them. He understands what they're going through. I think it was an amazing idea. It was a great experiment. And, you know, speaking to Morgan Ensberg about it, he's convinced this is the future, that in the not-too-distant future, there will be an analyst on a major league bench sitting there alongside the manager. To me, it's just common sense. Of course there will be. It's just going to take the, the team that's willing to do it and – you know, Morgan Ensberg said to me straight up, if I'm ever, you know, fortunate enough to be a major league manager, which is his goal, I will have Sig or someone like Sig sitting alongside me. I don't care if no one's ever done it before, I'll be the first. And and I think the Astros believe that 
there will be a day where it's just common. Every team has a, a analyst sitting next to the manager giving them information. And why wouldn't there be, right? And the goal of the Astros, is, and I think any smart organization now, is to have people running your teams that are receptive to that. A guy like Morgan Antwerp, who was a major league player, and a good one. Yeah. A solid major league player who was, like, now open to having a suit sitting with him in uniform in the dugout because he understands what value he provides as a manager and what value this other guy could provide that he can't. And I think any successful organization, everyone understands what they do well and what they could be better at and how they could fill in those gaps. And there's not egos involved. And the Astros, are, I think they've really mastered that. And A.J. Hinch is a great example of that as a manager. You know, he was a front office guy. And he's willing to – he knows what he doesn't know. And I think that's important. And the Astros are as well run as any organization in the majors because of it. Isn't it interesting, too? It goes to exactly the point that we were talking about with journalism. It's this idea of, okay, like Sig is, I'm going to guess, 47, probably something like that. He's like, cool, I'm going to go ride the bus in the New York Penn League. It's this open-mindedness, this intellectual curiosity that you have in yourself and that your employer vests upon you to be able to act on. That's really cool. And, yeah, for journalism, for baseball, for whatever profession, the idea that Growing occurs your whole life. You could be 75 and it's just like, I'm going to try this. I've never hang glided before or whatever. Like that's really exciting and interesting. And for an industry that has been hidebound in the past, yes, the analytic revolution has taken over, but there's still so many codes. You know, you have to throw at a guy. You know, you have to, you can't bond during a no hitter. There's these built in devices that are designed to keep the game rooted to the way that it was in 1920 to sit and blow up the culture that way speaks to something that gets me really excited about people breaking out of their box. It feels like the exact same conversation. We're just talking about baseball, not journalism. Yeah. And I think all, all good baseball teams are doing that now. Yeah. All that's, that's the, you look at the organizations that are most successful. It's what they're doing. It just is. And there's a reason why the Astros are good. There's just, right. It's not a coincidence that the Astros are good. Yeah. There's a reason why the Indians are good, why the Cubs are good. These are really well-run teams, and there's a reason why the Marlins have been bad for so long. You know, there's a re- these things are not coincidences. Well-run teams with smart, creative, curious people are successful, and the ones that don't have that don't win. And it's in some ways it's not that complicated. So. We talked earlier about the attendance issue and about this idea of lots of strikeouts and that the the way the game looks doesn't appeal to a lot of people. This feels like, to me, it's tied into the story that you wrote, that Ben Lindbergh had covered before and Rob Arthur and some other people about the baseballs changing, that the baseball is more aerodynamic than it used to be. They called it juice. You called it a different thing. Rob Manfred called it a different thing. Something fundamentally changed in the baseball. And you follow the kinetic chain here that if the baseball's different, you have more incentive to swing for the fences because you have a bet, you have a better chance of hitting it out. And if you swing from your heels, you have more chance of, of striking out. And in the interim, you've got pitchers throwing harder than ever before that are lending itself to strikeouts more and more. So let's establish it. And the, your piece on baseballs was good, but let's go one step beyond. Let's establish for a fact that baseballs are juiced. Although there has been some evidence that home runs have slacked a little bit this year, but. How do we create a more balanced brand of baseball? How do we incentivize teams to have more Ricky Hendersons, to have more diverse skill sets than just these big meatheads who hit home runs 
and these guys who throw 99. It's very, it's, it works. I mean, that stuff works. That's the secret to success now. But how do you change it up? How do we approach this? Do we deaden the baseball to make it so the ball doesn't fly as much? Do we, uh, you can't limit pitcher's velocity. I don't really know how to do that. But wh- where do we go to get to this point that strikeouts diminish, the game becomes I'm very biased, but the way that it looked in the 80s when there really was, oh, what's going to happen? Is this guy going to steal a base, hit a double, hit a triple, hit a home run? I wonder what the outcome is going to be. Pitching is too good. Mm-hmm. I don't know a better way to put That's it. Everyone, everybody wants to blame the hitters, that they're swinging for the fences. It's nonsense. It's total nonsense to me that this is on the hitters. Huh. No, no, no. The hitters are swinging for the fences because it's basically impossible to get three hits in an inning against pitching wow. this good. The pitching is insane. You have guys, look at freaking Pitching Ninja's Twitter account. Look at those pitches and you wonder why it's hard to hit. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's never, pitching's always been ahead, right? It's always been ahead. Right now it is light years ahead. It's like on another planet. Everyone throws so hard. They're tunneling their pitches so that fastballs and sliders look the same for like 58 of the 60 feet. <laughs> okay? You never face a tired pitcher. Ever yeah. anymore yeah. because of both of smarter bullpen management. In 1968, which was basically the last time offense was this bad, at least in terms of batting average. I know batting average is not the most sophisticated right. measure, but I'm using it for the sake of argument right here. Mm-hmm. The last time batting average was this low was in 1968. We all know what happened in 1969. They lowered the mound and they actually made it harder for pitchers. Yeah. Do we need to do that again? I don't. I don't know, but I do think we have to start acknowledging that. These things aren't sacred. The mound being 60 feet, 6 inches away, that's just an arbitrary number. Hmm. That's not based on anything. Wow. Do we have a world in the future where the mound is 62 feet away? Hmm. I'm not advocating for that. I'm not saying I think that's the answer. But I think at some point we have to open our minds to it. Something to just favor the hitters. You know, I remember talking to John Thorne, who's the MLB historian, one of the most interesting people on planet Earth, Oh yes, if you're a baseball fan. The guy is, he's fascinating. He knows everything everything about this. Fantastic book. He is amazing. Yeah. And he said to me, I I forget even why he said it, what story it was for, I forget even what I was talking about, but he said something to me, so the effect of the only reason baseball has existed for this long is because every X amount of years the games had to do something to favor the hitters because the, there's, there's been moments like this throughout history where the pitching has just gotten too good. The pitching's always been ahead, yeah. but it's, but not too far ahead. But there's been many times in history where the pitching got too far ahead and baseball as a sport to intervene to favor the hitters. And I do wonder if we're reaching that point. I'm not saying that. I'm not, again, I know if I say I'm advocating for moving the mound back, I'll get 8 million tweets. I am not advocating for that necessarily. But I do think we have to keep our mind open to that kind of change. It will not ruin baseball. It will not be the end of days. All these things are arbitrary. And if we want the game, if we believe that from an aesthetic standpoint, the game in the 80s was the best version of baseball or whatever, then we have to intervene to get it back to that because it will not just revert back. It will not because the pitching is going to continue to get better and better and the hitting will continue to get better and better and it will not just magically go back. We have to do something to make it go back, to incentivize contact, incentivize stolen bases or whatever. 
because it's not going to happen just naturally because it just won't. I think we're seeing that it just won't. So summarizing this podcast, you're saying relegate every team that's not the Houston Astros and put the mound on second base. Those are the two yeah, things. To I, do. Actually, I just think that we should just make baseball soccer. Oh, well, that's good. You see, that's fine. Then we're the good. The World Cup's going on. It's very exciting. If that's you're not right. watching it, you should be. It's, it's really fun. Uh, yeah. This is make everything that. I like it. Tunisia versus Iceland is just every baseball game. We just see those two nations compete. I'm all for that. It'll be a lot of fun. I think so too. Uh, Jared Diamond, you're one of my favorite writers in the business and one of my favorite people in the business. This is a pleasure. We will read you at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, subscribe to, how can people subscribe to the 30 newsletter? What's the easiest way to do that? Oh, the 30 newsletter. All right. So there is a subscription page. I'm not going to recite it to you because it's long and weird. Yes. So just go to at 30 newsletter on Twitter, the numbers, the, the digit three zero newsletter. Um, and in our little Twitter bio, there is a link to our Patreon and to our subscription page. Super. So yeah, that's very go check good. it out. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast and all the best. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad we finally did this.